Our scripture this morning is Romans 1, starting in verse 15 through 17. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Here at Sojourn, the foundation of this church and our only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's this gospel that Paul is going to lay out before us in the book of Romans for 16 chapters and for two really powerful verses here in chapter 1 this morning. Now, often when I get home uh, from work or wherever, if I'm gone, I'm, I'm met with shouts of joy and the kids running to me with laughter. And most of the time, many times, they are eager to share with me things from the day. Most of the time, they're eager to share things like pictures, Lego creations, new variations on a different kind of dragon they can make, all these kind of things they are eager to bring to me and share to me. You know what they're not eager to share is, is how they got in trouble that day. Like they're not eager to share, here's how many uh, times I had to... Uh, have some discipline brought upon me and things of that like, but they are very eager most of the time to show me their creations or pictures or notes that they have for me. Paul says in verse 15 to the Romans that he's eager to preach the gospel to them, and it's not hidden that he's both eager and it's not hidden why he's eager to preach that gospel. He, he's not trying to hide it as if he's ashamed of it. He says clearly in verse 16 and 17 why he's so eager to share the gospel to those who are in Rome. And he shares that eagerness, the why of that eagerness in verse 16 and 17, giving us, I think, the, the best couple of verses that give us the theme for the entire book of Romans. He, he says in these verses that the gospel is the power of God because it reveals, the, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God that can be ours by faith. There is no better news than that. There is no more powerful word than that, even to this Roman uh, audience that he writes to who would have known something of strength they would have known something of power. They would have heard all the great messages of the day. Paul goes into that audience, into that context, and says, I'm, I'm eager to share what I know. I'm eager to share the gospel. It's the power of God because it reveals the righteousness of God that can be ours by faith. Paul has displayed, he's, he's explicitly told them, he, he longs to visit them, not to see the sights of Rome, not to hear all the things that you could hear in Rome or, or to get the, the, the menu that they get in Rome that he doesn't get elsewhere. He is eager to be with them. He longs to visit them to preach the gospel. This is the gospel that he says in verse 1 is God's gospel. It comes from him. It's his. He owns it, and he extends it out to creation. This is the gospel, verse 3 and 4, that's concerning his son, who was descended in the flesh, in the line of David, and he was declared, verse 4, the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is Jesus Christ, is the substance of the gospel. So, so God is the author and the substance of it, and it's all about Christ, the one who he says in verse 4 is 
Lord. He's God the Son who took on flesh, lived perfectly, died sacrificially on the cross, was raised from the dead. And that gospel is the gospel that Paul is eager to preach, to publicly proclaim, to bear witness to, and to minister for in Rome. And the reason for that eagerness is verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Not of the shame of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is, because he's unashamed, that's why he's eager. He's eager because he's unashamed. That he says that, I think, implies and gives us this, this real sense that there's a real temptation and possibility to be ashamed, to have the opposite. Think of the context in their world. Paul gives us a glimpse of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. He says that to the Corinthians, we, we preach Christ crucified, which to them would have sounded like this. That's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles. In Rome, this, there's this graffiti-styled artwork that's a mockery of the cross. It was found and its dates as early as the third century, maybe earlier. So it, this just kind of gives a little bit of the context of the way the Roman culture would have thought of Jesus and the crucifixion. They had this graffiti style mockery that had this crude caricature of a man nailed to a cross with the head of a donkey. It gives you a sense of the feel of what the Romans and their context and their culture would have felt like, would have been like at the time. They think it's ridiculous that you would follow and call someone Lord who is nailed to a cross. And so there's a real temptation to, to see it as something that you could be ashamed of. It's folly to these Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to the Jews that are maybe there. And then it's a real temptation comes out in other ways as well. Paul has to tell Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.8, he says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. I mean, Timothy? Like, the guy that Paul took under his wing and trained and, you know, did ministry work with, he saw the power of the gospel, he has to remind him to not be ashamed of it? Yes, it's a real temptation. And so before we're finger-wagging uh, over the temptation to be ashamed of the how could you, how dare you, let's be careful to remember the company that we're wagging that finger at. It includes some disciples. Probably Paul might be included in that as well because he has to say, I'm not ashamed of it. It might imply that he had the temptation to be ashamed of it, and he has to tell Timothy the same thing. There are probably others. Paul explicitly states that he's unashamed of the gospel. And here's why, verse 16. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Works are not the power of God for salvation. Law keeping is not the power of God for salvation. Your good attitude is not the power of God to salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel, we need to read it carefully, is not about power. The gospel doesn't refer to power. The gospel doesn't affect power. The gospel is power. What kind of power? The, the word power in the Greek is the word dunamis. It's where we derive our word dynamite. The gospel, you could say, then, some say this, is the dynamite of God. As if Paul is eager to light some gospel dynamite in Rome. 
And while those things sound really cool, they're not correct. <laughs> if you're a nerd, here's what's happening here. This is a root fallacy of the word dunamis and taking it to our word dynamite and relating them together and saying, well, because they share the same root, they must share some of the same meaning. But it's actually worse than that because what is going on here is that it's a root fallacy that also appeals to reverse etymology, etymology, the study of words. And what it does is it's looking back from English, which Paul didn't write or speak in, and it's looking all the way back to the Greek word and saying, these are the same. So Paul must want to light some gospel dynamite in Rome. So again, if you're a nerd, here's what's going on here. This is an old root fallacy with some reverse etymology, and it's compounded by anachronism. That is looking over it across time. If you're not a nerd and you don't care about that, dynamite, saying that the gospel is dynamite, that the power is dynamite and they're the same, is basically reading a later use of the word into an earlier use of the word and actually shifting between languages. I mean, there's, there's some difficulty between even one language and reading older uses and later uses into one another. Within the same language, you do that across languages and the problem compounds, and that's what's happened when people say that the gospel is the dynamite of God. Paul did not have dynamite in mind when he was writing this. It wasn't invented yet. That's strike one, right? <laughs> he didn't have dynamite in mind. It wasn't invented yet. But think of the power of God, what he says of it. It's the power of God for salvation. What does dynamite do? Blows things up, rips them apart, destroys them, scatters them to the wind. In the Old Testament, when we think about the power of God, it's the power that delivers the people of God, redeems them. It's the power of God. He, he says to Pharaoh, I, I raise you up for this purpose, that my power might be displayed in you, that the world might know the greatness of my name. What power is he displaying through, through Pharaoh's rejection of letting the people go? The power of his redemption, the power of his salvation, the power of his deliverance. We read this in, in Psalm 77, where the psalmist writes of the power of God and connects a few dots for us. He says in 77 verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might, your power among the peoples. With you, with your arm, redeemed your people. What is he connecting there? Power and redemption. Power and deliverance. Might and deliverance. When we look to the New Testament, what do we see of the power of God? How does God reveal his power? Is it a dynamite? Is it a blowing things up, ripping them apart kind of power? No. Jesus is questioned, and they're trying to catch him in some, some words so that they can accuse him. And so they come to him, and they're trying to say, hey, what happens if, if you know, I've married, and then, or if my brother's married this woman, and he dies, and then it keeps going down the brothers, so in the resurrection, which these people that are asking the question don't believe in, who's, whose husband is she going to be? Like, who's going to be her husband in heaven? And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, again, what's the reference to the power of God? It's to resurrection. We see the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Paul is asking, I want to have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Okay, again, what's the power in reference to, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The, the, the power of God is over and over again linked to God's deliverance and resurrection, a putting together of life. Resurrection is, is bringing someone from death to life. It is a making someone whole. It is a 
full and final salvation. So God's power for salvation is less dynamite-ish and a lot more resurrection-ish. That's what Paul is getting at when he says the gospel is the power of God into salvation. And so when we say that there's gospel dynamite, you, you need to like think, oh, that's, an, that's a root fallacy, has reverse etymology and semantic anachronism. And it distorts the power that Paul is speaking about that's in the gospel. It's the gospel that expresses the power of God, not dynamite. But how does the gospel express that power? Paul speaks similarly, similarly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in verse 18, of chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The word of the cross, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Very parallel to what he said in verse 16. And what's parallel? Like the word of the cross. And that's power. The, the word of the cross is the power of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, a few verses down, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So what's, the, what's being preached? It's preached. It's Christ crucified. There's substance to that message. And that Christ crucified is in verse 24, what he calls the power and wisdom of God. Verse 15, he tells the Romans, chapter 1, verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you because, verse 16, it's the power of God for salvation. And so the power of God, how is it expressed? It's expressed in words. It's the word of the cross. We preach Christ crucified. I'm eager to preach the gospel because that gospel is the power of God. The power of God is expressed in words. It is expressed in gospel proclamation. We could say this, that the articulated gospel is the power of God. And Paul knew this power. He knew it personally as he met and heard the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And that power that he met on that day saved him. It turned him from uh, uh, one who was treacherous and a terrorist against the people of God to one who loved and served and worked to build up the people of God. He knew it in his ministry as he saw how the word of the cross saved people like Crispus, this synagogue ruler in Corinth. And, and how was Crispus saved? In, in Acts chapter 18, we get a bit of this account of, of how Crispus and others were saved. Acts chapter 18, verse 8. It says that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians. How? Hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Hey, we need to remember uh, just a brief bit about who the Corinthians were. He, he describes them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as unrighteous, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers. Men who practice homosexuality, thieves, they were greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And he says, such were some of you. That's their list. And yet in Acts chapter 18, people like that are hearing the words of Paul and believing it. They are transformed. They are saved because they hear the words of Paul. How are they saved? By hearing Paul proclaim, and what did he proclaim in Corinth? Christ crucified, the word of the cross. He's proclaiming the gospel. 
And so the gospel message, the articulated gospel, those words are no empty words. They do not just make salvation possible. They actually affect salvation. And so I think that leads us to a couple questions. Do you know this power? Do you know this power personally? You do not have to find a gospel genie, a gospel magic lamp, or gospel talisman in order to discover power from God. You need to just hear the very words of the gospel. That is the power of God. You need to hear the gospel that you can be saved from the wrath and judgment of God and that that is offered to you through Jesus and you need to respond to that message with belief. He says that everyone who believes, that that is graciously inclusive. Like you can put yourself into that pronoun, everyone. The articulated gospel is so powerful that it can save everyone who believes. That means that none are written out of this gospel because they're so bad or because of where they're from or because of how sinful they are. Saul can be saved by it. Nations can be saved by it. Us like sinners can be saved by it. But everyone who believes is also justly exclusive. Right? The, the gospel goes out, it goes far and wide, and it affects salvation, but for those who believe. Only belief leads to salvation. And so within the, the powerful message of the gospel, that is itself the power of God, there's this invitation from God to respond rightly to this message by believing. And so I ask again, do you know the power of God? You just need to hear the gospel to know it and believe it. And if you do know the power of God, I'm assuming that there's many that know the power of God, that the gospel has changed them and transformed them. If you do, here's the next question. Are you eager to get that gospel out? The, the gospel is power, right? It affects salvation. But it must be heard. It must be articulated it has to go out. Paul's eagerness to preach the gospel is tied here. It's tied to his being unashamed of it, and his unashamed nature is because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Those are all hanging together. His eagerness is hanging on that he's unashamed of it. He's unashamed of it because it's power. And so he wants to get it out because he knows that in the very hearing of the gospel, people can be saved by it. He wants to get that gospel out because he knows its power. He's seen its power at work in his ministry. Do we reflect that? We need to remember, I think, over and over and over again, the power of God that saved us if we've been saved by it and push through the temptation that is very real and possible to doubt certain aspects of it, to doubt the power of it, to have these, we all have these remnants that are, are perhaps ashamed of it because we think this is folly to this people that I'm sharing it with, or maybe it's a stumbling block to them and they don't want to hear it. We need to remember that it's power from God. Paul knew the folly of the gospel to the world that he was ministering to. He knew how it sounded to their ears. He knew that it could and does arouse animosity and hostility, that it could lead to some severe 
pain for himself. He knew all of those things. He knew that temptation. He tells the Corinthians, he says, I was in Corinth in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And can you relate to Paul when trying to get the gospel out in that? Fear, trembling, weakness. That's how he appeared to the Corinthians. That the Corinthians that would have thought of the gospel as folly, he doesn't go in with this proud look on his face saying, I'm about to drop dynamite on you. He goes in trembling with weakness and he gives them the word of the cross and Christ crucified. Why does he do it? He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 or chapter 1, verse 23, again, it's the third time we read it, but he says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. Folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. How does he press on? He, he knows he can press on because that message, the word of the cross, Christ crucified, is power. It's, it's stronger than even the strongest Thing from men. It, it's more wise, even though it seems like folly, than all of the wisdom of men combined. And so he presses on. What propels us to get the gospel out in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our trembling, in the midst of our fear? What moves us to, to eagerness, to being unashamed of the gospel? It needs to be that same reality, that this power of God is stronger than men, and that in the articulated gospel is the power of God, that this message affects salvation. Did you hear what he said in 1 Corinthians 24, 124? That it does seem like folly, and it is a stumbling block, but to those who are called, it's power of God. Like, he, he knows, again, not dynamite power, resurrection kind of power, power that raises Jesus from the dead kind of power is in that articulated gospel. And so he's eager to get it out because it is affecting salvation to those who are being called. And so he has this confidence in it. And so even in the midst of fear and trembling and weakness, he gets that message, Christ crucified, to those Corinthians. I like what one author has said. Like those who have gone before us, our voices are ordinary, our intellects are limited, and our personal capacities to stop the madness, speaking of the madness of the world and suffering and all that's going around us, are minimal. But Christ is risen, and the gospel we speak for our generation is nothing less than the power of God to salvation. You may have a lot of fear. You may go to people with much trembling. You may have a poor, lispering, stammering tongue. But the gospel articulated and heard is power from God. And since he's the power of God for everyone who believes, we've got to get that good message out. We need to be eager to get it to anyone who could possibly fit into that pronoun, everyone. But these verses all hang together. So they're all kind of hanging on this eagerness of verse 15. And he's eager because of verse 16. And verse 16, he's saying it's, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's power because of verse 17. In verse 17, Paul says why the gospel is the power of God. So look in chapter 1, verse 17 again. He says, for in it, in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, in the scripture, in the presence of God, the Holy One, 
when you see encounters with God's presence or visions of heaven, what you don't see from man are, are running to God and giving him big hugs and, and warm laughter shared over cups of tea. You, you just never see that in the scripture when you get the sense of the presence of God in you know, connection with man or visions of heaven with God on his throne and man. What you get more often is those men falling down as if dead. Because they couldn't think of anything else that would be more appropriate. And we have one of these in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, he gets this grand vision of, of God seated on the throne. And there's, there's these seraphim that are around the throne. And they have six wings. Two, they're covering their face. Two, they're covering their feet. And the other ones they're flying with. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. It's shaking the place. Isaiah takes this in. And the words that come out of his mouth aren't like, can I give this guy a hug? Can we maybe share a nice conversation over tea? He says, woe is me. I am undone because of what I am seeing. Why does he think that he's undone? The man of unclean lips. He points immediately to, in light of the holiness of God, his own sin. Now, there are many responses to God that Scripture clearly condemns. This isn't one of them. Falling down as if dead, God never condemns that. He never says, what are you thinking? There's something very right and appropriate about this response. You see, what sin is, is it's rejecting and ignoring God. It's a rebelling against him. It's a giving him the stiff arm. It's a living life without acknowledging him, living life without reference to him as his creature in his creation. What an insult to him. We don't need you. We were made by you, and this world is made by you. We're living in your world, and yet we don't want anything to do with you. That's what sin is. And what sin does is it stains us. It alienates us, separates us from God. And so when you see and you capture the, the scripture, it captures these visions of, of man with a holy God, or visions of heaven, they get this unmistakable inbreaking of truth and reality. And that truth and reality of who they are in light of who God is leads them to this feeling of, of awe, sense of unworthiness, of guilt. They, they understand more than they ever have before their sin-stainedness as they stand or fall before a holy God. That's what Isaiah has, a sense of his sin-stained life, a sense of his unworthiness, a sense of his guilt before a holy God. And sinners need to know that that's reality, and that that's way closer to reality before God than whatever sense or degree of comfort that we now sit in before God. And it's into that reality that Paul says the gospel reveals something. The, the gospel is revealing something. It is, it is giving us part of God's redemptive plan. And, and part of God's redemptive plan is invading time, space, history. The gospel, he says, reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals how sinful people who have rejected God, lived without reference to God, not acknowledged God, ignored God in his world as his creatures. It reveals how those kind of people can have right standing, right status with this holy God. 
The, the righteousness of God is this right standing, right status before God, and it speaks of the act of God bringing people into that status and standing. It is the righteousness of God that he speaks of in verse 17, this end time verdict that you are not guilty announced beforehand. It's the eternal verdict declared by the righteous judge before the end has come. And it's a bit like the parable of the prodigal son. Remember how Jesus tells of this prodigal who says to his father, I wish you were dead. Go ahead and give me my inheritance. I'm fine without you. I'm going to take it and run this way. It seems way better. He's giving him the stiff arm. He's not living in reference to him in a world that that father brought him into. And he goes and he squanders it in his living. And he is awakened to the reality of how bad his situation is. He sees his need and he says, well, man, even the servants have, have it better than I do in my father's house, so why don't I go back there? His status as he returns to the father is a status of guilty, condemned, deserving of judgment. The father could cast him out, could get rid of him forever, could say, you're not my son. You didn't want any part with me. You already wanted your inheritance. I already gave it to you. We're done. That's his status. It's guilty, deserving of judgment. But what does the father do? He runs to him. He wraps him up in royalty. The son, again, his status what he has done is just squander his living, reject his father, and what does the father do? Wraps him up in love, receives him as royalty, as one of his only sons, as one who is lost but has been found. He was deserving of judgment, and now he has changed his status from one who is this lost and prodigal son to one who is now accepted back in the family as a son of God. He didn't work his way into it. He didn't earn his way back. His father bestowed it. He gave it to him. He wrapped him up in it. And the righteousness of God that Paul speaks of here is the same. You don't work your way into it. You don't earn this status. The Father wraps it around you. He bestows it on you. He gives it to you as his gift. Paul, I think, verifies this with the words that he gives us in Philippians when he speaks of a, the righteousness that's of God in Philippians chapter 3. In verse 9, he says that he doesn't have a righteousness of his own that comes from the law. He has a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. He, he has a righteousness not of his own, not of his own works, not of his own law keeping, not of his own doing. Like that righteousness, he says, is actually no righteousness. And it's not worth anything. The righteousness that Paul has is the righteousness that's from God. In other words, the righteousness he has is, is God's righteousness, not his righteousness. It's a righteousness, a right standing, a right status from God that's bestowed upon him. He has not earned it or deserved it. It's given to him. It's a righteous setting, righteousness, a right standing that God imparts and sets him into. How does he obtain it? In chapter 1 of, verse, of Romans, verse 17, Paul says, he wants to make this really clear, that in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
He's certainly making a point with some of the repetition of words here. Faith, faith, faith. Paul makes the centrality of faith very clear. In verse 16, it's the gospel of of, of God that's the power of God for salvation to those who believe. And the same point is being made and added on to here in verse 17, that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The, the double preposition from faith for faith is pointing out to readers that faith and nothing but faith can put anyone into this righteousness, can put anyone into right standing or right status before God. It's faith from first to last that puts someone, puts one in right relationship with God. And so verse 17, Paul wants to make the centrality and exclusivity of faith really clear to all of his readers. Again, you don't work your way into it, you receive it, and you receive it by faith. And Paul's quote that he gives at the end of verse 17 confirms this. Again, Paul says this is the gospel that God had promised beforehand, referencing the, the, the Old Testament, referencing the scriptures that he had available to him. And here he quotes some of those words. He says that the righteous shall live by faith. Those are the words of a minor prophet named Habakkuk. These are the words in, in that book, in Habakkuk chapter 2. Th this is a, an interesting prophet. He, he is complaining to God, questioning God. He knows that, that his people, the Israelites, they're not walking in the ways of God. They're not walking faithfully. They're not keeping the law. They're, they're an unfaithful people. And, and he knows that because of that, that judgment is upon them and that they deserve it. But he doesn't like how that judgment's going to come. Because God's going to use, he's already told them, I'm going to use the Babylonians to exact that judgment upon you. And so he complains to him and questions him. Like, what is going on here? You would use them on us? And in the midst of that, God says to Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. That is, God is saying, trust me. That's how you move forward. You have faith. Have faith, and, and that, that faith is key to relationship with me in the midst of hard circumstances or unhard circumstances. Having faith, living by faith, is key to relationship with God. And that's what Paul's saying here in verse 17. By faith, the righteous will live. And the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, they will obtain life in the end by faith. I think both of those go together. By faith, the righteous will live, and the righteous shall live by faith. The centrality and exclusivity of faith, or belief for salvation, for right standing with God, is very direct from Paul and unambiguous, and that's intentional so readers don't miss it. But what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith. What is faith? We might quickly think of something that you, you know, and that would be good and right, but it can't just be assent, mental assent, or, or mental acknowledgement of something true that has happened. That, that is part of it. It is that, but it has to be more than that. It has to be more than just recognition of the truth. Verses 16 and 17 make clear to us that there's more to it than just recognition of the truth. Because you see what's needed in verse 16 and 17? Verse 16 makes clear that you have to believe to be saved. In other words, you need to be saved. There's, there's an understanding of this need for salvation. Verse six, 17, there's this understanding of this need for righteousness. And so verse 16 and 17 make clear that, that only God does this. It's the power of God that saves. It's righteousness from God 
that you shall live. That those are clear, that God's activity, not our own effort, not our own works, not our own merits, that make salvation, that make right status before God possible. But acknowledging those things as true is not faith. It's only the start. And so what is faith? It's the right acknowledgement of those things and our need for salvation and our need for righteousness. But then it moves. It moves to conviction. Moves to confidence or trust. Yeah, it's, it's mental. Yes, we don't, we don't check out from our brains and, and right thinking, but it's also not just mental assent, mental acknowledgement. It's a surrender of the will. It's a full trust in another. It's easy to see this in, in a scene that likely you have uh, taken in, even this summer. As we see the parent jump in the pool and the, the kid with the little floaties on the side of the pool and we're trying to teach the kids how to swim and they, they're trying to get them to understand that they can jump in the water, and especially with floaties, like, it's going to be okay. You know, you're going to make it. And then they get down there, and they hold their arms up, right? And like, jump in. I'm going to catch you. It's going to be okay. But oftentimes, like, kids are looking in the pool like, it doesn't look like it's going to be okay sometimes. I'm not sure what this water's going to do to me. And so you have that scene, right? And, and at that scene, you, you might be able to, if you're in the water, if you're a parent, you might be able to convince the child you, you're going to be safe. You, you've depended upon me for so much. You know that I can... You, you can count on me to catch you in this water and for you not to be harmed. If you haven't worked on that first, then take your kid to the pool, right? But you might get your child to know that they're going to be safe. But knowing that there's help in that pool is one thing. And it's a completely different thing. Actually, it's a progressing kind of thing to actually jump. To, to jump is to receive that help. To jump is to rest in that help. And faith is a bit like that. It goes from knowing that there's help there, that I'm going to be okay there. It goes from knowledge to conviction. Not just I can be okay there, but I should do this. I should jump because there is help. It's a, it's a jumping and a confidence. That leap is a receiving and a resting of the help that is offered. It is a surrendering myself to that help. It's embracing my own helplessness and casting myself into and onto another. And that is the bottom of faith. I love what one author said, that at the bottom of all faith is a feeling of helplessness. That helplessness is what makes you jump, right? I, I, there's only one way to be safe. It's in there in those arms. And so that feeling of helplessness is this jump. Or another author says that faith is not a meritorious work, as if you could, again, work your way into it, figure it out, conjure it up, but a stretching out an empty hand to lay hold of a Savior, and with Him, salvation. And perhaps the greatest hindrance to faith is self-effort. Often in that pool scene are a bunch of kids that say, I can do it by myself. You ever heard that? Maybe from your own kids. Maybe you remember saying that as a kid. Maybe you've heard it screamed from kids at the pool. I'll do it on my own. Perhaps the greatest hindrance to faith is self-effort. And we need to know that faith isn't stirred up. It's reached for in helplessness. That faith doesn't look inward. It looks away from myself to another. So when we're thinking about faith, like, and how to get faith, like, here's what I want to make sure that you know. Don't, don't look in your heart for it. Look to another for it. Amen. Look to Christ for it. 
Receive it from Him. Rest in Him. And in that power, and in that resting and receiving, is the very power of God for salvation. In that receiving and resting, in that trusting and confidence in Him, is the very righteousness from God. The very not guilty verdict that you don't deserve, but is already pronounced beforehand, is given to you from the Holy Judge when you receive and rest in Christ. There's this great movie, Saving Private Ryan, and it's been out for a while, so I'm going to run the end, but that's kind of on you because it's been out for a while. <laughs> and at the end of this movie, you have, you, the movie is, is a group of guys going to save Private Ryan. They have one mission. They've been given one mission. They're, right, they're pulled aside and say, hey, you need to go get this guy. All of his brothers are dead. He's the only one left. Go get him. We're bringing him back. We're taking him home. Go after him. So this team, they assemble, they go, and they're seeking to find this one guy. And they have casualties along the way. They're suffering along the way. It's a difficult journey. They finally find the guy, and they're battling at the bridge to, to save him. And you remember the, the captain, I don't even remember his name. It's been 20, I don't know how many years has it been. It's been a lot of years. You remember what he says as he's dying and trying to help Private Ryan get away. He, he whispers in his ear. Do you remember the two words he whispers? says, earn it. Earn it. And the end of the movie is the scene of, of Private Ryan, old and gray, with his family at, at the tomb, at the, the, the place where this man who said earn it and worked so hard for him lay. And he says in that scene, every day I thought of what you said. I tried to live the best life that I could. And he says, I hope that was enough. And he turns to his wife. He says, tell me. Tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I've been a good man. And we need to know, earn it is not good news. But the gospel is. And by faith, you get right standing right now with a holy God. You get the not guilty verdict bestowed upon you right now by faith. It's not worked into or earned. You don't have to turn at the end of your life and say, tell me I've led a good life. Like, I hope I've done enough. You're still receiving, still resting. Because God has set you into that right standing. The righteousness of God, the, the gospel that is the power of God for salvation is our only hope. And I can't help but think how different this, the ending scene of Saving Private Ryan is from the ending scene that we get with the parable of the prodigal son. What does he get? He goes from having no status, condemned status, to status as a son, and there's rejoicing in a big party. Because there's joy in heaven over one who repents and believes. What a different scene than tell me I've lived a good life. The gospel is our only hope. It is the power of God for salvation because it reveals to us the righteousness of God that can be ours by faith. Church, would you please receive it? Would you please rest in it? Jump.
Let's pray together. God, thank you for letting us receive your word. The power unto salvation. And we have no idea what you've done today in this room and in our hearts as your powerful word goes forth. A lot of people in different places hearing about what you've done. And I know there are probably some here who are still thinking Judgment Day goes down something like that scene from the movie that they'll need to prove to you that they've been good enough and that they have lived a good life. But God, your gospel is better than that, more powerful than that. And so I pray for surrendered hearts today. I pray that sinners in this room would give up and admit with Isaiah that they are unclean and we can only be cleaned up by you. We can't do it ourselves, God. Call some to yourself. You probably already have. Let them respond to this good news with repentance, turning away from their sinful self-control of their own lives and just give up and make you their king. You're a good king. You're a gracious king who lavishes your gifts on your kids. You pour out your Holy Spirit on us. You pour out your joy into our hearts and you enable us to follow you. God, will you do that today? Will you turn some from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light today? And let them leave with new hearts. It's a miracle. And you have to do it, Dylan. Can't talk them into it. Friends, parents, can't do it. It has to come from you. It is a gift. And Jesus, we praise you for that gift. We have good news. And we don't have to be afraid There are still reasons to be ashamed of your gospel. The world still thinks it's ridiculous. Every other way we can think of involves us obeying the rules, being good enough, and it's foolishness. The word of the cross is still foolishness, God, but we are not representing ourselves when we tell this story of what you've done. It does not depend on our eloquence or our confidence or our ability to answer everyone's questions definitively. It just depends on being faithful to deliver the message that you say is powerful and creates new hearts, God. So will you empower your saints today to be unafraid before a sinful world and to love people who think that we're nuts to love people who are enmeshed in their lives of sin. And God, let us speak the truth. And by your power, 
set them free, Lord. We want to do your work. We want to carry out your great commission, God. Dispel our fears out of love for you and love for them. In your name we pray.